In 2 Peter chapter 1, um, verse 16, we begin to get into the body of Peter's letter. He, he's written previously um, to a group of churches. This is uh, the idea behind 1 Peter, his first uh, letter, if you will. And in this second letter, he is writing to address some serious issues that are happening in uh, a group of churches. And the, the, the serious issue that he's dealing with is false teaching. There's false teaching that is being brought in and is confusing uh, the church, confusing Christians. And I think that we live in a day and age where it's important for us to find uh, the truth, the truth, uh, and to build our decisions established on a foundation of truth. You know, there, there seemed to me, at least, to be a period of time where, uh, you know, say in the last uh, five to ten years, where we went through this kind of discussion of truth being pretty relative. You know, what's true for you is true for you, and uh, what's true for me is true for me. But it seems that with the recent um, activity in the news surrounding the elections and, you know, this idea that we keep hearing about, like, fake news and, like, all this stuff, that there is a common understanding that there is an absolute truth. What absolutely happened? What absolutely was, uh, was factual? And I think we've come to see, uh, as a society, and I'm, I'm hoping we're coming to see, that the importance of absolute truth is vital because we plan our future. We plan our actions on the basis of these truths. We don't operate on the basis of a relative truth that is true for some person but is untrue for uh, others. You know, that would uh, not be very helpful. The majority of you are aware of where I live, and if I said, you know, it would be great if you came to my house, but some of you uh, got on the 101 North and started heading in an opposite direction, you would never really hit that, my house, if you believed that that was the, the truest way to get there. Like, that might be true for you, but it's not going to end in uh, getting to my place. Y you know, you might go a roundabout way and uh, find a way to end there, but all roads lead to, don't, don't lead to San Pablo, right? I live on San Pablo. Like, you, you, you can't get there by heading over the Bay Bridge into the city. It's not going to happen. There's only a specific way to get to San Pablo. And we all jump on that, on that highway through different experiences, right? If you live in the north, you have to come to the realization of, here is the main road that I need to be on. You might have gone through different things in life to get you to that spot, different places, but ultimately, the only way to get to my spot is to get onto San Pablo. There's, this is the only way. You can't get on, you can't arrive there unless you get on that street at some point. It's not open to interpretation. This is the only way. And I think we've come to this understanding, and, and I hope that what Peter's trying to get to us, give to us this morning, is that there is a, a standard of truth. There is a standard by which we must live our lives and a standard by which we plan the future. And the reason that he's writing is because there were people who were in the church who were saying, well, you know, some of these things that were said to you to be true, they're not actually true. And when you believe false things, you begin to plan your life in a different way. You begin to plan your life differently. You change your 
uh, behaviors, you change your attitudes, you change your actions. But when you believe that something is absolutely true, when you believe that it is going to affect your life, you begin to make changes to plan around this. You begin to set your life in order in, to, to succeed, to make a goal, to be to that spot where you will arrive at this stated goal, at this expectation that you may have. And what, what Peter is getting at here, and what he's really writing to address, is the return of Jesus Christ. This is what he's writing about. He himself has come with some doctrines. He's shared, here's what the future looks like. Here is what Jesus has said, that he will return. He wants the church to understand this, but they are being told other things. Right? If, if you flip ahead and, and, and get a little cheat sheet here uh, to chapter 3, in verse 4, he sums up his argument for us. Here's, here's the, the main reason why he's writing in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 4. He's speaking of what the false teachers have said, and he says this. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is, this is what he's writing about. He's saying, there are those who are among you, these false teachers who are saying, Jesus is not going to return. We lo we're looking for this promise. He's, he's not going to return. And he's made this promise, but it's not, not happening Ever since the beginning, ever since, uh, ever since he made this promise, things just seem to keep being exactly the same, going through the motions. The sun, the sun sets, the sun rises, the seasons change, everything is just, it's just moving through its usual motion. And the result of this, the implication of these beliefs is that Jesus is not returning, is that the Christians began to live in these crazy ways, just doing kind of whatever they wanted. They're not looking to a future hope. They're not looking to, uh, uh, to, to the return of Christ, but they're instead just deciding to live in whatever way they want. But Peter, this is why he comes in, in verse 3 of chapter 1, in verse 4, reminding the church that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, that we have the opportunity to know God, to enjoy Him, that He's given us, and this is how He opens in verse 4, He's granted to us His precious and very great promises. And of course, one of these promises is that He will return. He will return. He goes on in verse 12, as we looked at here, to say that this is something that you need to be reminded of. The foundational truths of the gospel. He says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them, you've heard them, though you've been established in them, it's right, he says, as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Reminders are so helpful. Reminders are so helpful because they help us set our course. When we begin to drift, when we begin to look away, they help us set our course once more. Now, as I've said before, I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in the ocean just every day, all the time. And one of the things that you learn 
as a young child in the ocean, you know, going there every day, is you learn the, how to read the ocean. You learn how to, to look out at the waves and to, to see when the sets are coming. You, you learn to, to see when is the best time to get out further into the waves because you can see where the channels are. You, you learn um, how, how the ocean moves. But one of the things that you're not really aware of is the, the, the power of the ocean. You're not aware of the current. And so as a, as a child, you go out and, you know, you're, you're ready to go out to the beach there and uh, with your family and planting your little umbrella there and you got like your snacks and you make your way out into the water your parents are like on the beach waving to you like, oh yeah, have fun, right? There you go. But it's not been five minutes and you're, lo- you're looking up and, you know, you've got a parent there at the water going like this, which means move down because you don't know, you're not aware that the power of the ocean, the tide and, and the currents cause you to drift. They're giving you that that reminder, you're drifting, you're not aware. I mean, if you're not paying attention, you'll be like so far down the beach. It's, it's, you, it just pulls you and you don't even know. You're drifting, drifting, drifting. You think you're in the same spot, but you're drifting. And, and it's, it's the parent that is there saying, let's go, you got to move back down. And then eventually, like if you're not paying attention, they make you get out and then you have to walk down the beach and you have to walk up like, you know, 50, 100 yards and get in down there because they know by the time you get out, you're going to drift right back to right in front of them. And, and, and what eventually happens is they say this, I'm not going to keep coming down here, but you need to keep looking up and find our umbrella, right? And, you know, there's the, the bright red umbrella. That's the one we're looking for. That is the, the marker. You always have to be, be orienting yourself around where is our umbrella. It's a reminder that says you're moving. You're drifting. You've got to reorient yourself. And here, this is what Peter's getting at. He's saying, he's, I'm wanting to give you a reminder because there is a 100% chance that you're going to drift. You're going to get distracted with other things. You're going to see other things. And you're going to begin to get pulled in a direction that you're unwilling to go, that you're unaware that you're moving in. And so you need a reminder, you need a reminder, you need a reminder that you're drifting. And it's not bad to get that reminder you're not in trouble for getting that reminder. It's just a subtle, uh, you know, provoking to pay attention, to set your eyes upon what is true. And this is what Peter says for us this morning. He says, set your eyes upon the return of Christ. Don't believe the lies of these false teachers. Believe the truth that Jesus has said what he has said, and it will, be, uh, it will come to pass that he will be faithful. He's been faithful in every, everything. He's never failed. Not once. And if he has said that this will come to pass, it will surely come to pass. And so this, this emphasis that he's trying to make is why when we get to verse 16, why his reminder is so important, why it's so weighty. He says the reason for this reminder, the reason for the reminder about the very great precious uh, and precious promises of God is because the truth of what he's trying to communicate is based on eyewitness testimony. He starts here in verse, we should get to the verse, in verse 1. 
or verse 16, sorry. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Now, this is important for us to kind of just unpack a little bit here because, of course, Paul, or excuse me, Peter is writing in the midst of Greco-Roman culture. So we have, you know, uh, I'm sure you, you are aware of uh, both uh, Greek myths and, and Roman myths. And so there were these different stories at the time, fables at the time that would come about that were uh, saying that, oh, this like specific God operated this way and this is how culture operated and society operated. I mean, if you think back to uh, Paul's trip into Athens, he makes his way into the city and, and there are, uh, upon his entrance into the city, he says that there are, there are uh, the city is just swarming, overwhelmed with idols to these various gods. It's completely packed. There's all these different stories and fables and myths along the way. And, and here, what, what Peter's getting at is this, this truth that I'm trying to communicate to you is not just one of those myths. It's not something that may or may not happen, but there is factual, uh, historical background to his claims. And it, it's, in fact, the the charge of the apostles throughout the New Testament that tell Christians to avoid these myths, things that are untrue, to always be parsing out what is the truth and what is false. We find in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writing, he says this, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Again, he in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says similarly to Timothy and um, that there will be those who will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. In Titus chapter 1, he writes that there are those uh, who should not devote themselves to Jewish myths and that the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And so it seems to be that there is a connection between these false teachings and a turning away from the truth. And so this is what you need to understand. It is your job as a Christian to always be prepared to seek out the truth. This means that if you have doubts about the truths of Scripture, come with your doubts. It's okay if you're thinking, like, I'm not really sure, like, how that works. I'm not really sure if that's true. If this is true, what we're teaching, if this is true, what the apostles are declaring, if, if this is true, the Bible should be adequate to stand and give an answer. And so if you have doubts this morning, if you have concerns, the scriptures have answers. The scriptures have answers. Come into a dialogue. The church is not a place where you can say, well, if, if you're not really sure about it, like, don't ask any questions, right? If you have doubts, if you have concerns, Come and ask your questions because the scriptures have answers. The scriptures testify to the truth. And so it's okay if you're thinking like, I'm not really sure about that. The scriptures are sure. And there will be answers for you. And so come. Ask your questions. Bring your doubts. The scriptures are powerful and testify to the truth. I wish that this would be the approach that many would take. But there are academics, scholars, society, culture who are really looking to 
cast the scriptures as mythology. They're not really willing to engage at a deep, honest, intellectual level with the truths of scriptures. You know, I think we all come with some bias, of course. I think we all come with some sort of perspective, but we shouldn't be coming to anything looking to say, oh, you know, that's wrong right off the bat. We have to come and, and let, uh, let the scriptures, you know, interpret themselves and, and to, to show what is true. We've got to come with an open mind. Now, what Peter does when he writes, he is writing to combat this claim that they're saying that the truths of the scriptures are, are false, that they're myths. And it's, it's these, these uh, myths that are being declared by these false teachers uh, that are beginning to influence the church. And so Peter writes to combat this. What causes those who claim to follow Jesus? What causes these people to deny the truth? What causes you and I to deny the truths of, of Scripture? Well, it seems like for, for the false teachers here, what Peter's kind of really um, trying to summarize in chapter 3, verse 4 is this. The world seems like it's running. seems like it's doing its thing. It's like it's not really that bad here. Seasons are happening, you know, everything's going, like, we're on a schedule. Things seem, like, generally, like, they're in order, pretty good. Seems like we're at a better place than we've ever been in history. There's, just, there's a general observation that there's, you know, mostly stability in the world. It's kind of what, what he, it seems like he's getting at. He's like, so why would we need, why would we need Jesus to come back and save us and rescue us? And why would we need Jesus to come back and, and, and to do anything. It seems like this is, this is kind of the idea that there's no need for change when things seem like they're running decently. And I think we are easy, we're easily tricked into accepting that basic lie. Because on the flip side, if you think about it, maybe your life is good, maybe your experiences are good, but I think we can also look around and say, say that there is brokenness, trouble, oppression, heartbreak, persecution. There are injustices. There's lies. There's all sorts of, of brokenness sociologically, biologically. We find, you know, in, in the environment, things are, are broken. Like, all across... The world, there is uh, this stamp of decay, of sin, of brokenness. And the only thing that can make that right is Jesus. It's Jesus' promise that he will come and make things new. Not that he will make, he will repair things, that he will make things new, completely new. That's a beautiful promise. I don't know about you, if if there's something that I have that's broken, I'm way happier if somebody replaces it with something brand new than something that's just like, oh yeah, like I just kind of like repaired that a little bit, made a little bit of touch up on that. When you're given something new, when you see something new, it just provokes within you just this thankfulness, this gratitude, like, whoa, like I did not expect something new. Like I would have just been happy to have something not broken. 
but something completely brand new? But Jesus goes beyond that. He's promised life and life abundantly. As Christians, we need to recognize there's no reason for us to be satisfied with these false lies, with the promises of a world that is not at rest. We're too easily satisfied with garbage when Jesus wants to give us more, wants to provide more, wants to see uh, us come to a full and complete knowledge of him, when he wants to see, uh, you know, the world made right. And so these false teachers, they don't even give an, an iota of truth to these claims. They call these claims false mythology, lies. It seems as though um, we, we don't know exactly what type of teaching. I've done like a massive amount of reading to find out like what specifically kind of like were the, were the philosophies of these false teachers. And uh, there's very many uh, perspectives on this. But I think one that's helpful um, we actually find, I don't know that this is exactly it, but I think one that is helpful here, Paul addresses himself in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He, he's writing to kind of deal with a similar uh, false teaching. And he concludes, like here, that or he's writing to address that there are some who have concluded that there is no resurrection. There's only the kind of this spiritual resurrection. Like, oh yeah, you know, you, this has already happened. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, uh, Paul writes this. He tells them, avoid irrever uh, irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. There are those, Paul says, who, have, who are making this claim that the resurrection has already happened, that it's already done, and that people, you can just do whatever you want now because it's already, it's already complete, it's already finished. And what does he do here? He basically breaks it down and says this, we've got to stop this because it's spreading, right? We, we all know how this goes, right? You see something out there, it's like clickbait. You won't believe. You won't believe this. And all of a sudden, it's like made its way around the internet. And finally, like, it, it's just spreading so fast. There's a, 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 an article or something that you're reading about that's like totally not true. And people are spreading it, like sharing it like crazy. And it's making its way around the internet. And finally, like some, some gracious person comes and just says, boom, Snopes, read this. Here's, you got to go here. You got to find out, is this true or is this not true? It's got to be exposed because what happens? It spreads like gangrene. It moves its way around the internet. And this is, this is what uh, Paul is saying that we have to do. We, we can't let these false lies make their way around because people get confused and it generates this irreverent babble and people start talking about things that are, they're wasting their time. But we must not swerve from the truth. We have to stay rooted, planted in the truth. And so Peter, he says this, the testimony that you have 
It's not cleverly devised myths. It's rooted in history. Now, what Peter could have done is this, and, and I want you to see how he approaches this. He could have said, you know, it's not really, it doesn't really matter too much. If you guys are making the claim that Jesus is not coming back, it doesn't really matter too much if he's going to return physically, bodily. The, the idea is okay that he's going to return in the spiritual sense and that his spirit will be among us. And he, he could have he just said that. He could have just said that. But for Peter, the historic claim that the bodily Christ will return is important. It's factual. And so he's unwilling to give ground there. He's establishing his claim in a physical bodily resurrection and a physical bodily return of Christ. And so he says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, I'm not deviating one bit from the truths of the scriptures. His point was that the churches that he's been writing to, they've been founded on apostolic tradition. They've been founded on the truths of the gospel, the teaching. And you've been instructed about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these two things, the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not two different things. They're, they're one thing together. His coming will be in power. His return will be in power. Right? This is how Jesus describes his own return in Matthew chapter 25, 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So these two things are synonymous. His coming and his power are together. But this idea here of his coming is really this idea, uh, it's this word uh, perusia, which, which means presence. His presence will be among his people. This word is used uh, primarily throughout the New Testament to describe the coming, the return of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, Jesus uh, is there with his disciples. We read, and he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? and the end of the age. They're asking, when will you return? The, the, your your uh, your return to set all things right. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, Paul, in this big uh, explanation about the bodily resurrection of Christ, speaks to the bodily return of Christ in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. He says, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits at his coming. There's that word perusia again. Those who belong to Christ. That there will be this physical, bodily return. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this word refers to the re return of Christ. This is the same word that Peter uses in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. He says that in this, in this instance to, to combat 
the lies of the false teachers. They're questioning the promise of his coming. What Peter says is this, we've made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. He says, we've already made this known to you. It's not something that is just an extra like bonus doctrine that we tacked on at the end. It's like this is a core key element. Now, of course, Peter wasn't probably the one who initially made this known, but he's lumping himself in here with uh, those who have instructed this church and this group of churches. He's like, this is core. This is something that is essential to being a Christian. This is why Peter's writing, to address the false teaching of all these promises about Christ's coming. Now, why does Peter care about this so much? Why should we care about this so much? The promise of his coming was made known. Well, as we said, Peter is writing to give us a reminder. He's writing to give us that benchmark. He's writing to give us that umbrella in the sand because when we are in culture and we're drifting in the waves, when we're drifting in the sea, when the riptides have got us and we're, we're moving down, we need to reorient ourselves in the ocean. We need to reorient ourselves and see the promise of his coming. The expectation of Christ's return is core to being a Christian, that you expect him to return. It's one of the marks of being a Christian, that you take it serious, that you expect it, that you're joyful about it. And let's be honest, like we really struggle with this because there are these mini goals that we've set in life. Like, oh, I hope Jesus doesn't come back because I like, you know, I'm really hoping for that day where I graduate like high school or I got to graduate college before he returns or like, you know, I'd like to get married before Jesus comes back. And there's like all these things that we're making in exchange for like, well, maybe he could put it off a little bit because like I still have some things I want to accomplish. Like, let's be real. Like, that's what's happening, right? You all got something. We all have something that we're just like, oh, it'd be great. If, but in, that, in those moments, what, in our heart of hearts, what we're really saying is like, this thing is a little bit more valuable to me at the moment than the return of Christ. I promise you, when Christ returns, you're not going to care about those things. You, you won't care about them at all. But our hearts go there so quickly. We need to be reminded. We're so easily distracted by these small things. Our confidence in the Lord's return should be there. We should long for him to return. We want him to come back. We want to to see the scenes of Revelation play out before us where all the nations are gathered around his throne and worshiping and experiencing him and enjoying him. Like that's something we we should hope for. And I think it's important here that we are reminding each other about the return of Christ. That we're dreaming out, like, what will it be like? It'll be so great when Jesus returns and we're with him and we get to enjoy him. We're reminding each other 
that Jesus will return. We're setting our eyes on the prize. Our mind's attention on the return of Christ. That's how it works. That's why, you know, I'm, I often return to that in my prayers. Where the mind's attention is set, the heart's affection will follow. And so we need to set our mind's attention upon the return of Christ, upon Jesus, upon knowing him and enjoying him, and then the heart will follow. Mind right? Game tight. You know how it is. Again and again and again. That's why we only beat one drum around here. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Because we've got to set our mind on Christ. Now, it's important, and not only is it just important, it's not optional. It's not optional. Here, Paul writes, and I want you to catch this, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. He says this, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He's writing, and he says, Encourage one another with these words. What words? He's writing about the coming of the Lord, the return of Christ. He has this whole section in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he's talking about uh, the expectation of the return of Christ. And he says we ought to be encouraged and we ought to encourage one another with these words that Christ will return. It's our job to be reminding each other of the return of Christ. Okay, we finish here with Peter's last statement. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, this isn't about myths, this isn't about fables, but what I'm declaring to you is true. It's testimony. Testimony that Peter and the other apostles, they endured torture, they gave their lives for. It's not fake. You You don't give your life for a lie. It's not a half-truth. It's not a partial truth. But eyewitness testimony. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, this is key. It's important for us to understand. Because it's eyewitness testimony on which we build our faith. Right? This is Paul's claim in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he talks about the bodily resurrection of Christ. What does he do there? He says, Christ has raised in a physical body and he was viewed by over 500 witnesses at one time. And then what does he say? Many of them who are still alive today. Why does he say that? Because it's an invitation to the skeptic to say, if you don't believe me, go talk to any of these witnesses. Go interview them yourself. It's an invitation to to go out there and say, if you're not going to take my word for it, you can go and talk to any of these people. Get your questions answered. They will come, and if they'll say, oh, Paul's crazy, they'll say it. If they were to say, oh, that didn't happen, they have the opportunity to say it. But the eyewitness testimony is key. Peter writes at the end of his uh, first letter, First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. In Luke chapter 1, verse 2, Luke writes, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So we have Luke writing there, not only including himself, but others there who were from the beginning as eyewitnesses. In John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our, hand, uh, with our hands, concerning the word of life. I mean, John goes, he just goes all the way. He's like, here's, here's the sensory experience. That which we have heard, that's which we have seen, that's which we have looked upon, that's which we have touched with our hands. He's like, look, I've got the full experience here. I'm not just saying I'm like, I'm a bystander, I'm a fly on the wall. He's like, no, I'm in the middle of this story. I have the experience. I have, I've experienced the risen Christ. He says, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. John's whole argument is like, I've seen, I've experienced, I'm sharing this from an eyewitness perspective so that you can trust it and that you can also have the same experiences that I'm having. So Peter says, I'm an eyewitness. We are eyewitnesses here. We're not making this up. The false teachers are saying that this is a lie. I'm not making this up. His confidence in Christ's future return is not based on a myth, but it's based on eyewitness experience. We, have, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, this word majesty, it points directly to the deity of Christ. That Christ is God. The same word is, is used here um, as a response to Jesus in Luke chapter 9. We finish in Luke 9. You want to flip over there real quick. 937. This word is applied to Jesus and Jesus' works In Luke 9, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. And will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. 
It's here in this text that we find a glimpse of the divine. We find Jesus practicing a miracle, something that human hands could not complete. This father in this desperate situation in the supernatural realm does not, he comes to the disciples and they are unable to have power over this spirit, but yet they come to the Son of God. They come to Jesus. And it's Jesus there who doesn't go through the motions of, of any sort of uh, physical interaction as he does in some of his other uh, experiences, in some of his other miracles. What does he do? He uses his words. The word of God revealed. He uses his words, and he commands creation. In the same way that he spoke creation into existence, in the same way that he created the wind and the waves, is the same way that he set the sun in place. He reveals his divinity, if just for a moment, a glimpse, by speaking by rebuking a spirit. It's in that moment that he says, simply through his action, I am Lord over all, and there is none like me. It's in that moment that he demonstrates his divinity. And, and what happens as a result? They're all astonished at the majesty. There's that same word again, the majesty the divine glory of God. It's no wonder that John can write then in verse 14 of his first chapter, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John's like, I've seen some stuff. I've seen the power of Jesus. I've seen that he is the Son of God. Now for Peter, he's going to get into a very specific experience that we look at next week in the transfiguration that very closely mirrors the revelation of who Jesus is, uh, mirrors the baptism of Christ. It's in this, it's in this uh, moment here that Peter is describing this majesty, the transfiguration, where they get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And it's there that he says, when you've seen that, when I've seen that, how could you ever doubt the promises of Jesus that he will return? He will return. He, you, can, you can bet on that. And so this morning, we encourage one another with these words. He will return. We look to that day. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be so exciting. But it's until then that we have to set our eyes upon that marker 
upon that prize, upon our treasure. Our mind's attention upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and then our heart's affection will follow. We've got to set our eyes there and then respond and worship. So let's do that together. Lord, we are thankful for your, your faithfulness to keep your word. Lord, you've never broken your word. You've never failed. And so, Lord, we count. We count on everything that you've said, and we take it to be true. And so, Lord, we come this morning with the expectation that you will return. We look to that day. And, Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts to give us that deeper longing. We want to see you clearly. We want to respond to you rightly. Lord, it's easy for us to be distracted by the, the things here, the small milestones that we have in life, the things that we, we want to pursue, that we want to push off, your return, because we want to experience things. But Lord, when we see you correctly, when we see you rightly, we know that you're the only thing that's really going to satisfy us. You're the only one that's going to meet our needs. And so, call us now to worship. Call us to respond. We love you. Amen.